Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 335 and my conversation with percussion performer, educator, and composer, and current manager for the Palin Music Center location in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, Adam Bruce. We'll get back to him shortly. We are getting ever closer to spring break over here at Mizzou, and it can't come soon enough. But... Classes progress as they do, and we go further into the NCAA tournament season with men's and women's basketball bands. More on that in the coming weeks. This past weekend was one of the best weekends annually in the city of Columbia, Missouri, which is the True False Documentary Film Festival. As is the case every year, I was fortunate to get to see a bunch of films that were shown at the fest, and I'll discuss a few favorites in the rave section at the end of the episode. I do want to shout out my wife here, Rebecca Meisenbach, for being in the front page photo for one of our local papers, and who did great work as a core member for the True False team, working with a group of volunteers she was overseeing. Great job, babe. And now, let's get to our conversation with Adam Bruce. Adam got in touch with me at some point last fall when I put out word through social media and the podcast episodes about getting some opportunities to present my podcast presentation and get some feedback on it prior to recording it for Virtual PASIC 2022. He let me know he knew my colleagues here at Mizzou and was a fan of the show, and it was great to interact with him through that. I told him that we need to have a conversation for the podcast, and so here we are. Adam has been active in the percussion field for quite a long time and has only recently moved into his job with Palin Music as their store manager. He's been active as a composer for a while, having written for a variety of ensembles and styles of works, and having many of them performed regularly now at various conferences over the past few years. He's also been active as a percussion specialist and performer for a long time in Oklahoma and talks about all of those experiences and more in this conversation. One more item before we get started. Adam and I had some issues with connectivity over the internet during this conversation as there was a thunderstorm in Tulsa during the interview. So if you hear some odd audio blips and fade outs while you're listening to it, that's why. And I hope it's not too distracting. In any case, let's get to it. We recorded this interview during a thunderstorm over Zoom on February 15th, 2023. And it begins right now. All right. So Adam, give me a summation of your responsibilities as they are right now in and out of the percussion world. In the percussion world, mostly what I'm doing is composing, doing clinics and uh, some you know, judging things here and there, uh, indoor drumline stuff. And, um, yeah, I was a percussion specialist band director for 14 years. And then just this school year is my, my first year out of that. So that's, that's where I'm shifting my time doing a little bit of, uh, playing in a few, you know, like local symphonies. Um, but for the most part right now it's, it's composing. But you also have a, a job outside of that, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm the, manager at Palin Music Center in Broken Arrow, uh, which is just right outside of Tulsa. And, um, and so that's, that's my, that's my paying the bills job. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. 
at what point was the writing for percussion a thing you wanted to do? And when did you get started doing it? Well, the first time that I tried to write something for percussion, I wouldn't say I successfully wrote anything at this point, but it was actually in eighth grade uh, whenever I got my hands on the, the Tarzan soundtrack that Phil Collins did. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> there were some really cool uh, tracks in there with you know really cool drumming stuff, just trying to figure it out. And I don't, you know, as a 14-year-old or whatever, you know, I don't know how to figure out what I'm hearing, but I tried to, uh, I remember it was um, some end of the year testing and you get done and you have to sit in your desk and just, you can't talk. You just have to sit there, wait till everyone's finished. And I had one of those tracks in my head and I was trying to write it out. And then I was like, well, I wonder if it was actually this. And I tried to, you know, quote unquote, write my own percussion ensemble. I wish I still had that music. I got it. Who knows what it would be. But um, that's whenever I first got interested in it. And then getting into high school and experiencing marching band and drumline. And uh, my freshman year, we did music from The Mummy, uh, mm-hmm. Jerry Goldsmith soundtrack. Yeah. And I don't think I'd ever experienced music in such an intense way uh, mm-hmm. at that point in my life. And then I found the, uh, the end credits um, track from that. And I tried to write my own drumline parts. Well, what if we had done this? And just mm-hmm. trying to figure it out like that. And so I always had a little bit of an interest and then started doing uh, marching percussion or arranging for, for schools and college. And then that kind of grew. And as far as like really writing any kind of legit percussion ensemble stuff, that was, that was all born out of a need. Like I had, you know, seven middle schoolers and three and a half of them could play decently. And then I couldn't find anything that matched what they could do. And so the first handful of pieces I wrote were just, you know, purely out of necessity of, I can't find anything for these kids that they'll be successful on. And so I just wrote something. What, in, you know, when you're writing those pieces, what kind of, you mentioned, okay, you have like half of them could play and half of them were just getting started and, and all, yeah. whatever. What were you dealing with instrumentation wise? At that particular time, the school I was teaching at, um, instrumentation wise, I was pretty much, you know, I pretty much had my, my pick of the litter. Um, really anything that I wanted was available, um, at that particular school and particular time. So that wasn't, that wasn't an issue that wasn't limiting. And, you know, it's more just like, you know, what's going to work well together. How can I, how can I do my best, uh, mimicking of Nathan Daughtry and then dumb it down <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of what I was going for back then. Because I, I, I would imagine that one of the one of the challenges I'm sure you you know with writing for I would say younger ensemble is not writing things that are too hard mm-hmm. trying not to write too hard stuff yeah so what did you were you did you have any processes to try to say okay maybe that's was it just trial and error like you would give them the thing and you'd be like all right I can I can like take some stuff out and this is still a pretty good piece I don't with that first piece it's called Little Military Piece. Um, I don't remember doing any trial and error. I might just not be remembering. You know, I, I just really took my time with, okay, thinking about the exact kid that was going to play this symbol part and uh, really trying to just customize it. Um, but yeah, with, for, that is hard writing, especially for middle school percussion where, you know, even if you're teaching like eighth graders, there might be a, a huge range between what the kids in the same class can do and finding music that 
you know, can fit is, is a real challenge. On the opposite side, did you have any, were there any challenges with writing for a group where you really didn't have to worry about fitting to a certain person? Not really challenging. It really actually, that kind of feels a little more freeing. I suppose um, I think about a couple of uh, bigger percussion orchestra pieces that I've written in the last few years where I'm not thinking about anyone in particular. And so I just kind of, I write what I want. And then, you know, I might, you know, a certain marimba passage, if it's fast or complex, you know, get on the instrument myself and make sure it's reasonable. I, I find that to be a little easier. When you are writing pieces for a group where they're, um, you know, doing these either larger performances or you're freed up. Um, do you get to have interactions with these groups about, you know, either over Zoom or in person where you're like, you actually have gotten to, to get feedback or hear things and be like, oh, that, that, that's a good idea. Yeah, um, I've done some of that. Or I've been able to do some of that. Brian West premiered a piece of mine called Golgotha at TCU. We had a ton of back and forth uh, emails and, and, you know, kind of asking like, hey, at this part, are you thinking, you know, what if we did this size of the symbol or what if we added something like that? We had a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of input and, and that, which, which was great, um, you know, coming from somebody like him. Um, and then I, I see this year, this past year, I did a percussion orchestra piece for Wakeland High School in Frisco, Texas. They played at PASIC and um, that, that was a commission piece and I was able to go down and work with them. And it was, it was great because I could hear what was happening. Like, okay, this sounds really dry here. We need to add you know, a splash of this, let's, you know, take that out beyond just like mallet choice or symbol choice. Um, being able to, you know, kind of workshop things a little bit in, in person in real time. I, I, I actually have a lot of fun doing that. I find myself doing that a lot more with um, schools that I do marching percussion arranging for. Um, I'll get there in person and it's like, oh, yeah, we need to take out that, put this in here, add some of that. That seems to be a lot more, <laughs> a lot more needed with marching percussion stuff. But well, why, why is that? There's a couple reasons. Sometimes with, if it's with the battery, it might be where they are on the field in a particular moment. You know, what was written, you know, when you didn't know what the drill was going to be like, you know, that can, that can really affect things or a certain section of the band that is you know, matched up with the metallics in the front ensemble, maybe they don't project very well, or and maybe that, you know, section isn't very strong. And so you gotta thin things out or, you know, just to tailor it in person. It seems like there's so many more variables in marching band than there are in, um, you know, controlled percussion ensemble settings. So it seems like it, at least for me, I mean, Probably some people, they get it right the first time. But um, for me, there's a lot more tweaking that needs to be done. You know Cliff Walker? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, because Cliff writes for the for Mizzou, for, for our, and um, there are a lot of times where um, I'll do some, I'm the, uh, of the band directors, I'm the, I'm the one who's, who's a percussionist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so even though I don't, I don't do anything with the drum line, like that's Cliff's, that's our J, like, but, uh, but I'll be the one who would be like, 
double strokes. Yes. You know, <laughs> like you like the real, but that's the kind of thing. Like even um, it might be even like a week after they've all run it down and you're like, ah, this will work actually. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny. I've talked to Cliff about it and he's like, it's, it's fine. Like <laughs> do what you want. <laughs> oh, Cliff's great. Yeah. We, we did a show together this past fall and he's super smart and so yeah. talented. Like, cause he's writing so much. I think he just always has stuff going through his head. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last time I saw him, I, I asked him if, if, uh, if he was going to get all the double paradiddles out of his system tonight. <laughs> and he was like, well, definitely not. Um, but you can never have too many diddle diddles, double paradiddles. That's another story. I don't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. That, there's the camps. We- <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's funny with your because of your job and kind of other obligations do you do uh carve out a set time or amount of time each day to to write i don't no you know whenever i was a full-time teacher in the summer i i definitely would do that with marching percussion arranging um definitely had to do that just, you know whether it was just every morning or you know five or six hours a day um, I definitely had to do that. Um, now in, in my new job and where I'm in the last couple of years, I'm doing a lot more percussion ensemble writing. Um, I definitely do not have a, a set schedule. My wife and I try to plan it sometimes when I have something that needs to get done. Like the past, past month I've been, um, writing a bunch of, uh, four mallet etudes. Uh, I got commissioned to do them for an Oklahoma percussion committee that was formed for, the Oklahoma Music Educators Association, the MEA for Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And basically, they, no one's been happy with the four mallet book we've been using for the last 10 years or so. They asked me to write a series of short etudes to be used for um, for those auditions for four mallets. So I've had some regular time lately as I've been trying to do that. But generally, it's just whenever I can get it or inspiration strikes mm-hmm. and you just have to. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, talk, tell me about the new job. Um, how did you even, how did working at a, you know, a, like a, a retail center with Palin even come into your, into your brain as a thing to do? Uh, this past year uh, with, you know, my full-time teaching job, things got, eh, the dream wasn't a dream anymore. And I was looking at another school and kind of talking to some folks there and talking to my wife a lot and trying to figure out what's going to work best for us. And and then we were just, we were driving home from, we were in Oklahoma city visiting our, our parents and we were driving back and I just, it just popped in my head. And what if I reached out to the guys at Palin? Um, I knew them and I knew the, the manager, the current manager where we were. And then the vice president and president, I'd met them several times and, knew them, you know, just through different things over the years and just see if they have anything. I don't even know what I would ask for. Fairly good administratively, but again, like no retail experience whatsoever. And so I just sent them an email and said, Hey, I, I don't know if you guys have anything at all. Um, you're looking to hire anybody in any way, but um, I'd be interested to talk to you if you did. And there, it, Palin is a really great company, uh, really, really solid core values and really good people that work there. I, you know, I've come to respect them a lot over the years and 
and working with him. And um, within five minutes, I get a text from the vice president and says, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just emailed us. Uh, this is perfect. I'm calling you tomorrow. <laughs> I, mean, I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> so yeah, it was all to me. I mean, it, it was just a complete God dang. Like, things weren't going great where I was and I didn't know what to do. And, and then all of a sudden just like, boom, you know, it just hits me like I should just reach out to these guys. I don't even know why, or if they even have anything available. And, um, yeah. And, you know, retail isn't, isn't my heart's desire uh, or anything like that, but it's a great job, great people and still music. I'm getting to go out and help a lot more, you know, teachers and kids and, um, and have a lot more free time, uh, time at home and time to be creative and play and compose and do all the things that I haven't really been able to do much of as a full-time percussion director. The timeline, when was that call? That was, it's probably right about a year ago. It was, I think, late February of 2022. Yeah. So about the time that you would be, like, seriously looking elsewhere, Mm -hmm. I assume. Yeah. Yeah. When do you end up starting working for them? Well, it was kind of drawn out. Um, I signed the paperwork over spring break, but didn't start until July. Sure. Um, I was able to go to a couple of the leadership meetings in Springfield, I think one in April and then again in June, and you start to meet some more people and uh, see some other people that I had known um, through drum corps and other things that worked there in Missouri stores. And But I didn't actually start day to day until July. Are there typical days or is it pretty much... It, you could be at the store, you could be visiting schools, like it, it, it could be any number of different things. Uh, fairly, fairly typical. Um, I do generally like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm in the store all day, answering emails, doing invoicing, you know, whatever needs to be done. Um, Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings, I go out and visit schools like Tuesdays I go to West Tulsa and go to a couple schools um, out there and then on Thursdays I'm kind of East Tulsa I go up to Owasso um, and uh, so it was either like I, I kind of got to choose if I wanted to do a full day of running routes and visiting schools or do two half days and sort of embedded in every percussionist is having the two half days that seemed to you know be a better fit and be out about more and not just sitting at a desk so you don't so those days when you go out you don't you don't have you don't, I don't even have to go to the office or I do I after. Usually, uh, yeah I come back after yeah okay yeah or if, if I need to like if somebody's instrument got repaired and they need to bring it back or they ask me to bring them something you know I'll go to the office first gather that stuff up and then head out is part of Palin's model to do um, is kind is of, part of your job to try to get more schools to be using Palin as their kind of primary place. Yeah, yeah, and I mean we've got a lot of schools to keep up with um, from you know northern central Oklahoma, eh, not quite central, but all the way out to like Fort Smith, Arkansas, and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that is part of the model. And that's 
it's not native to me. I'm, I'm no salesman for sure. Uh, that is not in my DNA, but, um, you know, a lot of it comes through, you know, our, you know, our repair team is really great. Um, and, um, everybody who's out working as ed reps and visiting the schools, we're all former band directors and, and we get it, you know? Um, and so that's a lot of, you know, success in getting schools to work with Palin is, you know, comes through those relationships and, um, and, you know, for, you know, for me, it's, you know, my, my sort of niche skills as a percussionist, uh, that's, some people are really needing help with those things and I can go and help them organize their storage or tell them, you know, you need this many, um, you know, washers and this many felts, symbol felts, and you don't have a matching pair of bass drum beaters and, you know, help them with those types of things. And that's, for me, that's, that's how, you know, going out there and finding ways that people need help turns into getting more business, you know, not just like, Hey, you should come try this trumpet. Um, but like, how can I help you in your day-to-day life as a band director? Does your spot have a lot of um, people teaching private lessons there? They used to, um, but there, there aren't any private lessons going out of our particular store uh, anymore. Pros and cons, but yeah, right now, yeah, we're just, pretty much band and orchestra. We don't have, we don't have a single guitar in our particular mm. store. Um, some of the Palin stores are much more focused on combo and guitars, drum set, all that sort of stuff. And ours is band and orchestra. It, does your site have the repair right there? Or is there another place in town that does kind of does the main stuff there? Uh, it's, it's right there as part of the shop. Uh, we've got four full-time repair techs. Band and orchestra are huge in the Tulsa area and, and, you know, out to Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so there's, yeah, there's lots of, lots of repair going on, you know, day in, day out. So it's right there. If if you walk into the store, you can see through glass windows and see them at their benches and working on stuff. A lot of people are pretty intrigued by that, but then also smelling like the soldering going on. (laughs) It's pros and cons. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You walk in, you're like, all right, I've had an, or why don't you come to my office? Is that, is that what you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Step this way. Yeah. <laughs> Taking the job, did it require you, your family to move or no? No, no. Um, so we live in Jinx, which is Southeast Tulsa, basically. And then our store is in Broken Arrow, which is, sorry, Southwest Tulsa is Jinx. East of Tulsa is Broken Arrow. So it's like 20 minute drive. Um, for me, which is, you know, it's nothing. It's great. So that was definitely one of the, the selling points of it was, you know, we don't even have to consider moving and it's, it's only a few minutes further away than school district where I was teaching. Well, let's, let's go back, Adam. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is a nice little suburb just North of Oklahoma city. So right in the middle of the state, yeah, I went to, went to college there and um, lived there after graduating and uh, taught in the area until we, uh, my wife and I moved up to Tulsa eight, eight and a half years ago. Gotcha. Do you have family members in the arts? Yes, uh, all of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, this is the family business. <laughs> right, it is, yeah. 
uh, yeah, almost not a choice. Um, <laughs> both my parents um, got music degrees from Oklahoma Christian University in Edmond um, in the 70s. And um, actually, I think my dad was the first person to graduate with a music degree from that school. Um, but they both uh, music degrees and my mom uh, is a clarinet player and piano teacher, taught piano lessons for 45 years. Um, and she did middle school choir for several years. My dad um, is a percussionist, um, mm-hmm. but also a guitar uh, player. And he, he was adjunct at Oklahoma Christian for 38 years. Wow. Um, doing guitar and sometimes teaching some percussion. Um, and uh, yeah, he was a worship minister at church growing up. Um, went to a Church of Christ, which is all a cappella. Um, so a lot of people that can't quite get their wrap their brains around that we're all instrumental musicians, but grew up in the Church of Christ uh, with, where there's no instruments. Yeah. Um, and my dad is a, a piano tuner, has piano tuning business at, since the 70s. That my brother uh, works with him. He, my brother has taken that over and does that. Uh, I have two sisters. One, they're both younger. One who's, we're real close in age. We're just one year apart in school. Um, she plays piano on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you heard of it, uh, but. Of, of, of piano or Broadway? Yes, I've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just, she's okay. As like a, as, as a, is she like in a, in a pit or is she like a, a like a repertoire or. She's done a couple of different shows. One where uh, it was the Lehman Brothers trilogy, where she was the only live musician. Oh, okay. And, um, and she was actually just right up against the lip of the stage. She wasn't down underneath. She's done others where she's been, she's down in the pit. There's kind of a variety. Um, and, uh, but that's super boring. No one wants to hear about that. Um, <laughs> no, she's great. And then my uh, youngest sister, uh, she is a uh, vocal professor at Belmont in Nashville. Uh, so she's yeah vocal jazz is her her main area there so then my, my wife is a band director a musician her parents both have music degrees her <laughs> grandfather was a choral professor at university of central Oklahoma for 25 years it's so it's wow yeah it's it, we, we've all we were all infected and just you know accepted it i'm talking to a dynasty tonight this is exciting <laughs> the bruce yeah. family dynasty we all have you know different different uh offshoots but yeah i'll speak the same language which which can be you know really great yeah yeah you you have a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of arms in this in this industry that you yeah. definitely it's a very broad scope of of uh of items well when did the percussion part then first hit you hmm. well um you know i grew up taking piano lessons and then in fifth grade, we some people came to our school as band directors and you know tested test all the kids and aptitude testing and everything. And um, in my mind, I was thinking I want to do percussion like my dad. One of the the directors there, uh, his family friend of ours, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but he he showed up with a trombone and played the Imperial March, and I was like, that's it. <laughs> that's the rest of my life. I'm going to walk around playing Imperial March on the trombone and it's nice. going to be awesome. Luckily, I, I think I talked myself out of it. Just like, no, nah, I'm going to, you know, do what my dad did. And so sixth grade was when that really started. And 
Um, I had great middle school percussion experience, great teacher. And um, we did a lot of percussion ensemble in middle school, which I just loved. I loved that experience. And um, so sixth grade and in the mid middle school was whenever I really first got into percussion. Were you in a, a school that had, uh, that was like had a big band focus? Yeah, pretty big focus, middle school and, and high school. Percussion uh, particularly was strong at both. And so I, I really lucked out um, with that. And um, in, in middle school, uh, the head band director of our middle school was the percussion teacher and a, he is a percussion, percussionist himself. So I got a lot of specialized attention that most kids don't, don't get you know, if they're percussionists or so yeah, and then in high school, um, none of my band directors in high schools were, in high school were percussionists, but we had some, you know different marching techs on and off who were really passionate, really into it. And there was a a core group of us that were super into it and kind of dragged everybody else along with us. You, you were one of the core that was super into it, and you brought everyone with you, is what you're saying? For sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah whether they wanted to or not yeah they won't i made them want to yeah that's good that's good where you are in oklahoma and this is where I'm, I'm gonna kind of not be sure of how i of the geography of the state um but is there are there like pockets where um that are like is is oklahoma a very regional area within the state yeah yeah it i mean there's lots of little towns peppered all throughout but sort of areas it's oklahoma city and the surrounding suburbs and then tulsa and the surrounding suburbs those are definitely the two biggest hubs within the state there's a lot of space i should say between (laughs) cities when you're in western oklahoma and the panhandle especially with you know thinking about music um those two those two areas um are very densely uh saturated with with great band programs and and great music yeah so when you would be in high school would you just kind of stay in like your region and just that would be the high schools that you would compete against primarily or would would it be kind of statewide you'd see all the high schools from Oklahoma City at some point or something state championships are broken up into different different classifications and levels Um, 6a is the biggest classification in Oklahoma and so School, you know, where I grew up in Edmonds, there's three high schools in that one town, and they're all 6A high schools. <laughs> and so we would, yeah, we would compete, you know, with the other schools that were big and like that. And up in Tulsa, you know, there's, there's Broken Arrow and uh, Union and Jinx and Owasso. They're like, you know, the real big schools. And um, so yeah, we would compete with, I mean, we would go to the same competitions as them. Sure. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, we definitely were not at their level, at the level of those programs. But um, we would, you know, we would see people all over and then, you know, at Allstate, you would see people from all over, that sort of thing. Aside from doing all this, this music stuff, were you involved in anything else that was filling out your time, sports or student government or other church-related activities that were filling out what you were doing? Yeah, I did a lot of sports uh, growing up and until, I don't know, maybe I was 16, 17. And then I just, couldn't balance the time a lot of soccer a lot of baseball a little bit of gymnastics that did not last long <laughs> a little bit of track and, and i really liked 
especially soccer was my favorite. I really enjoyed playing church and church youth group, very involved in that, you know, Sundays and Wednesdays. Yeah, definitely not sitting at home, twiddling my thumbs, getting into trouble kind of the childhood or teenage years is definitely full of activities. And I was in choir too. I was always, always doing that. So um, no shortage of things to be busy with. Sure. What, uh, where, on, where on the soccer pitch were you typically positioned? Uh, typically a sweeper. Oh, nice. I like, I was, yeah. that was, I, that was one of my positions that I enjoyed that one. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 I loved it. Just kind of reading the field and right. calling out. Get it out. <laughs> my job is yeah. to get it out. <laughs> I don't got to score. Get it out. <laughs> yeah. Don't have to be a great ball handler no. per se. You just got to be able to read the field and get it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's good. Uh, what about baseball? Where was where where did you play in baseball? Pitcher until Ooh. everybody else hit puberty, uh, way before me, <laughs> and then I couldn't throw hard enough. And then mm-hmm. and then oddly enough, I went to third base after that. Oh. Um, you got to have a pretty good arm for third base, so I don't, I'm not sure why I ended up there. But, um, <laughs> I was I was I was a little guy. I, I I grew about ten inches in high school. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so. I really liked baseball and then through middle school, my teams kept breaking up and go to a new team and it would break up. And I guess it was me. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> Blame myself. I, I mean, I don't know why, but um, between that and then, yeah, just like being a little guy and not having a strong arm, I was pretty accurate, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it just kind of, I, it fell off a little bit. Well, I'm curious because of where you where you are and where you grew up, did you have um, either a soccer or a baseball fandom that you kind of, uh, that helped you kind of grow your own interest in these sports? Yeah. It's Oklahoma is funny when it comes to professional sports. Cause when we have the thunder, but yes. that, you know, it didn't come around until I was an adult. Yes. Um, and before, you know, before that it's you, you're either an OSU fan or an OU fan. And, that was That's it, right? Those, those are your choices. <laughs> and, and you know, my family is all in the arts and nobody could care less about college football in my family. So I, I really didn't have any kind of big fandom growing up um, until the Thunder got here mm-hmm. and my in-laws had uh, season tickets. And so I got to, you know, go to games pretty regularly, which was really fun. That was in like the... Uh, you know, Kevin Durant, James Harden, yeah. Russell Westbrook. I was about to say, that's like, that was the best time. Yeah. You know, 2011, 12, 13. Yeah. Really fun, really fun years to be going, going and seeing them and um, going to those games. Uh, Nick Collison. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Really, really fun. But yeah, as far as other pro sports, um, for as much as I like watching sports and loved playing sports, I am the worst sports fan. Uh, <laughs> I don't keep up really with anything. I, I don't want to pay for subscriptions, uh-huh. I, but I love, but I love playing and, and watching. So I don't know. I mean, for soccer, you know, if uh, every now and then I'll, I'll go to a, a sporting Kansas city sporting game. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's, great, that's really fun. That's an awesome stadium. I've been there. A few oh times. yeah. It yeah. is awesome. Yeah. I went uh, a couple years ago. I was at a game and, uh, the groundskeeper, I guess they have like some sort of app on their phone where 
you water the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the game started, and then all of a sudden the sprinklers turned on. <laughs> and, and I guess he uh, butt-dialed the sprinkler app. <laughs> And it was it was crazy, but yeah, those games are so fun, and that field is is awesome. It's so cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sporting, and um, my mom grew up in Fort Worth uh, mm. in the you know '60s and '70s. So oh, Cowboys, Cowboys. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you know, there's there's part of me that's required to be like a Cowboys fan and Texas Rangers. My brother's a huge Rangers fan. Yeah. Um, my dad's from Michigan. Um, but he has no sports allegiance, uh, mm-hmm. really. Um, so yeah, I rooted for the chiefs, uh, on Sunday. Um, just, you know, the regional team. Sure. Of course. But, um, but no, I'm, I'm the worst sports <laughs> fan and I like sports. That's, that's yeah. the weak part. I remember when, when you said the thing about the sprinkler, um, so I, I haven't seen sporting KC, but I've seen the U S men's national team play there a couple of times, which was amazing. It's not it's a small not a sprinkler small. system. As you know. No, no, it's like it's the whole field. Yeah, <laughs> you can't really escape it if you're down no. there. Yeah. It's Did really obvious. I think it was two summers ago. I saw the the U.S. men's national team that played Canada. Oh no, I didn't. I wasn't that. I was. Was it good? Oh yeah, it was. It was great. I think all the goals were scored within like the first twenty minutes of the game. Ah. But still, it was yeah. super fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's hard to what's hard to explain if you're not there is that it's it's one section, mm-hmm. and that's it. And so, like every every any seat you have is is actually an incredible seat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not blocked by anything. Everything feels really close. The only it's, downside is like the guys who are playing the drums oh sure yeah oh right yeah <laughs> gotta tune that out for sure <laughs> right exactly <laughs> but you know they've got the right passion yes <laughs> i'll leave it at that yeah yeah their stroke type probably leaves a little bit to be desired I'm, i would say so too so was it a foregone it's kind of a weird thing but was it kind of a foregone conclusion that you go to oklahoma christian not not in a like my parents were like, you're going to go to school here. Sure. It certainly wasn't that. Um, I just, I, I grew up at that school. Um, mm-hmm. You know, since my dad taught there, you know, as a kid, I'd just be running around the hallways all the time. And um, probably half of the music faculty I had known my whole life um, growing up. That school, Oklahoma Christian is, it's a church of Christ affiliated school and you know, grew up in that denomination, go to school there. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it's kind of funny because I look back on it now and I, I, I'm confused, <laughs> but like, I didn't, I didn't even audition anywhere else. Mm. Um, but I was like super serious about percussion and, um, but I didn't even look anywhere else, which I, I don't understand why. Uh, I guess I just had this plan. My best friend and I were going to go to school there and going to room together and, I'd grown up there and it was in town. And so, I don't know, I just kind of just did it and made the most of it. Yeah. Did, did your friend also go through? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a saxophone player. Um, and yeah, we actually lived together the whole time we were there. Um, 
you know, you know, they say like, don't go to, don't room with your friends from high school or whatever. Um, that, that was not a problem for us. Uh, uh, we had a ton of fun, but yeah, there weren't, so I did five years there and there was not in five years, there was not one other music major who was a percussionist. Mm. So I played for everything you can I imagine. You did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pros and cons, you know, so I I really missed out on the percussion ensemble experience. And the whole time I was doing marching drum corps every summer. So Mm. so I was feeling that. And in the falls, I was teaching marching band, teaching drum line, uh, high school drum line, um, because there's no football team there. There's no marching band at that school. Um, So I was able to do that. That's probably the thing. I don't know if I would say I regret, but that I really wish I had had was a percussion studio experience. When I went and did my master's later, I was older. I was 10 years older than the freshman and I was a full-time band director at the same time. And so I wasn't hanging out, getting to know the people in the studio or anything like that. I was the grandpa mm-hmm. um, who was married and had a house. It was unique getting to, you know, playing for any and everything, but at the same time, not having anybody to, you know, bounce things off of or, or play with or friendly competition or, you know, not having that dynamic. Now, who do you end up taking lessons with? So I took lessons with uh, David Steffens at Oklahoma City University. He was uh, the principal percussionist in Oklahoma City Phil for a long time. And uh, actually, I started with him as a senior in high school. And then I was able to go study with him, even though he didn't teach it at Oklahoma Christian. I studied with him for a few years. And then um, there was a couple other people that came in adjunct that I studied with a little bit, but he was certainly my primary teacher and definitely I would say had the most influence on my playing. You know, when, when you're studying with him, what, if you can remember, like what, what, what kinds of things were you, you definitely needed more experience in when, when you start, when you are in college? Uh, four mallet technique, mm-hmm. definitely. So in high school, I was I was in the battery all four years. I was never in the front ensemble. I didn't have that experience. And when I was a junior, there was a guy who was a year older than me who ended up going through a doctoral program at OU. It's one of the uh, his hands were just made for the Stevens script. Incredible player, uh, Michael Coleman, and um, he was just a year older than me. So we were buddies, and you know, I would just kind of sit and watch him and you know try to make my hands look like his and I didn't have anybody telling me like this is how you move mm-hmm. your wrist or your arm or, or or anything like that um I was just trying to mimic what he did and for me I always my musical ear and intuition have always been a, ahead of my technical understanding mm-hmm. and so you know I could play yellow after the rain but I had no idea how the technique worked and I would be bleeding right here every time I practiced. So I'd be mm-hmm. squeezing so hard. So yeah, when I was studying with, in college, it was definitely a uh, you know, four-mallet technique was where I needed a lot of uh, help and just development. Yeah, uh, I remember when I started with him as a senior in high school, we did the first page of stick control and he had a dozen variations on it. And we would just track all the tempos and do it match grip and do it traditional grip. And that just, just that very first page, those two columns. Right. 
completely changed, changed my hands and um, so many different variations and, and everything that, that definitely set me on a, a new trajectory was page one. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's weird. It's interesting with that book. I think I've heard that there are a lot of people who the, I think they use the first three pages mm-hmm. and then that's like, that's, that, yeah. that's all they need, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I don't know what the rest of the book looks like. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> I remember like I've gone through it. I think a few, like, you know, going through some of the other pages and there's like a bunch of roles and some other stuff. And I was like, Oh, well, this is kind of interesting, but I've like some people I'm like literally never seen. I feel like I'm the only person who discovered this. Well, I would bet that if you are the only percussion major, does that mean, I mean, so, okay. So the, does this school have like a band and orchestra? Does Like, does it have large ensembles? And you were like, basically you were covering the best part or you were covering all the parts. You, you were the, you were the guy. <laughs> Luckily it was, it didn't come down to that. No. Yeah. So they had a uh, band and jazz band and jazz combo. There was a string ensemble, not a full string orchestra, mm-hmm. but um, if there was always enough people playing percussion to, cover however many parts whatever we were doing um and 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 some of them you know good players too um but i was definitely the only serious percussionist and so yeah i mean i always you know ended up with the hardest parts or um when i was a freshman there were i think we had three drum set players in jazz band um one guy was like a fifth year senior and then a guy who's just a year older than me but couldn't read music uh, and then me. And so by the time I think I was a sophomore, you know, I was the lead drummer in jazz band too. But yeah. So there was always other people that I, you know, to, to cover parts and, and whatnot. Uh, we did have one semester of percussion ensemble, um, which was really fun. I, I really enjoyed it. They're just that particular nexus of time and people. We actually had, you know, four or five people with pretty good hands. Where and and with whom did you study or did you do DCI or drum or whatever stuff you were doing there? So I marched for four summers and the first two uh, was with the Colts and um, a couple of guys from my high school uh, had marched there. And um, and so a bunch of us drove up and went and tried out. I tried out when I was 16 and um, did not get a call back for sure. I was a shrimp. Um, but I came back two years later and I was much taller and, uh, the bass tech guy remembered me. And, um, and so I, I marched there. I marched at Colts. I played bass drum, played bass four, and it was way too big for me, but I could play the, the, uhs or the tuz and mm-hmm. I could get those in time. So yeah, putting on bass four. Um, and I did that for two summers and then that, um, that bass tech, Chris Sikowski, he's a Missouri guy. He lives in the St. Louis area. Um, awesome, awesome teacher. He, he went to the Blue Coats. And um, I, I, every summer that I would march, I would come back and I would have zero four mallet chops. I couldn't play anything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, golly, I can't keep doing this and not, not playing that all summer. So after my second year of drum corps, I was, at that point, I felt, like I, I, I wasn't musically, I wasn't really being fulfilled. You know, I kind of grown past what we were, 
that core was doing competitively at that time. I was like, do I, should I like pivot and try out for the front ensemble and play mount, you know, try for a mallet spot or go somewhere else and just, you know, try to take bass drumming farther and, you know, push myself in that. I didn't know what to do. And then the day I decided, okay, I do want to do drum core. I want to go somewhere else and keep playing bass drum. That same day, he called me out of the blue and said, I'm going to teach a blue coats. I think you'd really like the environment here. Uh, there's this guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, Mike McIntosh. He's writing the book now. So this is, this would be for the 2006 summer. So Mike had been there for two years at that point. And uh, so I went and did that. And this guy who'd been my base ticket Colts calls me and says, I think you'd really like it here. It's a very different approach, different atmosphere. And so I went and tried out and made it. And the best part was that it was base two, not base four. And so for my last two summers of drum corps, my back never hurt one time, not one day, which was awesome. Um, so I went in March Bluecoats and uh, had a really great experience. You know, like I said earlier, that was really where I got a lot of fulfillment and camaraderie of like a, like a studio type camaraderie where, you know, iron is sharpening iron all summer. And I sat across the bus from the center snare, uh, Eric Shriver, and um, just like, fix my left hand, like show me how to really actually play traditional grip. And I, I learned so much that summer and um, I turned 21 during that summer. So I had the option of another year, mm -hmm. but I was really trying to weigh out finishing up school on time at Oklahoma Christian. You had to take a bunch of different uh, sort of religious studies, Bible class credits um, to where to do a music ed degree and to do that. It's five years. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do five years. So I was, I was not going to take my bonus summer. I was not going to march it and, um, and just, and do that and try to finish school on time. And then May rolls around the next year. And I get a call from Jeff Fiedler from the Cavaliers. He was running the Cavaliers at the time. And their second base had dropped out um, in May and uh, which is super late. That's yeah. definitely worrisome. They had gotten, gotten my information from a guy I had marched blue coats with, was in school with the guy who had marched Cavaliers the summer before. And they were like, hey, would you be interested in sending us an audition video for this summer? And we hear you're available and you're still eligible to march. And it's so stupid. But my first thought was, oh, sorry, boys, because the summer before at blue coats, we had beaten them in drums. And it was like, oh, I don't want to go to Cavaliers, even though they had won. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, tough luck guys. But then quickly I realized how dumb that was, but I hadn't touched a marching bass drum since finals night, the August before. And so I was like, Oh, would you mind going to the innovative percussion website and watching a couple videos, <laughs> blue coats videos. And, and so luckily they, they, they went for that. And, uh, and then I got a call pretty soon thereafter and was asked to come fill that spot. And, I said, yeah, let's do it. Summer school sounds lame uh, now that I'm thinking about it. Uh -huh. um, and so I, I just a couple days later, uh, I was going to move-ins and I had never marched the bendy leg style and the playing technique was different because this was when Cavaliers, uh, whenever it was the Jim Casella, Jim Ancona years. And so they had that sort of uh, early 2000s Vanguard approach which was a lot, was a very different drumming approach than what I'd been doing at Blue Coats. 
Um, so it was a lot to, to learn and figure out, but which, which, in, and just so for clarification, what entail, explain the difference between those styles. Oh, sure. Sure. What I had been doing at Colts and at blue coats was the, uh, the rotation technique where your forearm is flat, you're yeah. not breaking the wrist. Right. Um, born, you know, mostly out of, uh, you know, nineties Cavaliers, um, Jim Campbell, Brett Kuhn eras. And so that's what I had been doing. And then what the Jim Casella, Jim Ancona, sort of former Vanguard crew did was, you, know, you keep your forearm parallel, but you're using your wrist. You're breaking your wrist. It's, it's match grip turned on its side, which a lot of people do. I have very strong opinions on what looks better and what's easier to clean. So that, that was really hard for me to make that switch after three summers of playing one way and really trying to, to perfect it to then to go to the opposite. But yeah, so that, that, that plus the super bendy leg marching technique that took me a while to figure that out. Um, but then once I did, I, I made a lot of great friends that summer there and was happy that I, I ended up doing my age out at Cavaliers and experiencing playing very, very different arrangers and teachers and techniques. You had said the difference between the Colts and the Blue Coats. You, uh, you said something about how it was. There's like a different atmosphere. Oh yeah, <laughs> explain that if you don't. Well, <laughs> I don't. I don't think any really anyone does drum corps the way that it was done in, in terms of the atmosphere. Like when I was at Colts, it was very hardcore. Um, you know, you. It, my first summer there the philosophy with the battery was um, if anyone breaks or anyone has an egregious mistake or a tick, everybody runs. You stop the rep, put on your drums, everybody runs every single time, which really just made a lot of us just scared to play. Yeah. Um, it was very, it was, it was very difficult to do. And, and we were very, tiring, oh, which is going to affect your technique. <laughs> Yes, it's a, it's a, it was a perpetual downward cycle. And yeah. it wasn't as much like that the next year. Um, so this is 2004, for reference, yeah. was my first summer there. That was definitely the mindset, you know, that was still whenever there was retreat after every show. You know, you're standing there with your drum on your shoulder. No one's blinking for however long it takes. And that was, that was pretty brutal. And I, I, there was part of me that really, like, bought into the hardcore nature, like, I kind of thought it was cool, but after a while, it was like, man, I just, I just really wish that we were actually really good. <laughs> then it's like, like there's a light, a light flicked on. It's like, man, we are really focused on being very serious, but I don't think we drum really great. And that's what I care about more. So the environment at Blue Coats was, I mean, it was much more relaxed and a lot of that drum line was marching uh, WGI. You know, some of those groups are notorious for being <clears throat> perhaps a little too relaxed. Um, might be the, the the kindest way to put it. But um, yeah, so that was a big change for me. But it we we were we played really really well that summer at Bluecoats. So we had ten ten people in the snare line, and I've never witnessed another snare line that blended so well. So we just really put a lot more emphasis on musicality and touch and motion and musical things. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. 
Of the four years you marched, what was your favorite show? My favorite was probably the Blue Coats here. I don't know if it's just because it was so different from what I'd done before. You know, there, there was that factor. The music was super cool. Um, I was, what was the show? It was called, uh, it was called Conexus. Um, there was some Pat Metheny and Cirque du Soleil music um, before that was just done to death. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I really liked it. And I, was, and I was going from bass four to bass two, so I got to play way more and uh, much more interesting parts. The next summer at the Cavaliers, that show was really great too. It was very, physically, it was very hard. Um, very demanding, which was cool to get to experience that, um, you know, just that quintessential, very symmetric Cavalier drill was fun, but it was definitely very, it was really hard. But yeah, my favorite summer overall probably was that at Blue Coats. The other thing I want to ask was what, what was the, was that, I know that you said that you were getting, you were getting like, you were doing like a religious studies minor or you were taking like a lot of, or something like that, but Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, for the students there, what what was the religious component of the education? I didn't I didn't get a minor, but if I had taken the amount of classes anywhere else, I would have a <laughs> you'd have a minor. Yeah. Um, but for that that school, there's there are a lot of uh, youth ministry majors, a lot of just like religious studies or religious philosophy. Um, a lot of people go there intending to become ministers or preachers. Um, I wouldn't say it's the majority of the school, but for, you know, that, that is, I would say that maybe it is sort of the nexus of the school. There are a lot of other programs that are really good. The nursing program at that school is very strong, for instance. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of people with going into ministry, yeah, go to school there as part of your music degree, did you, were there classes in like history of sacred music, things that, that were required or anything that was on that? Um, not, not really. I mean, you know, we had all the you know, music literature, music history, you know, all the stuff that you have anywhere. Um, but there wasn't really any, I don't know if there are now, but at the time, at least there weren't any music, major track classes that married music with religion per se. Um, now, you know, I think of the music history professor who he, he's actually the first professor ever hired at that school. Mm. And um, he married my parents and <laughs> so I have long connection with him. Yeah. Um, he, uh, you know, he would put, I wouldn't say like a a religious slant on anything music history wise, but he didn't shy away from it. Talking about, you know, Bach, for instance, Uh, he would say, you know, he play some, play some, some Bach thing and say, this ain't no Devo song. This ain't no devotional. You know, this is real music. This is, (laughs) um, so yeah. Nice. But yeah, there, there weren't any, you know, particular classes that you could take like a, like a music ministry class or like a music worship ministry type thing. They didn't have anything like that. What ends up happening after you graduate? So I, uh, I graduate and I, right before I graduate, I, I get in touch with 
a guy who I had known from the summer at Cavaliers, he had gone and spent uh, a year with, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but the Japanese competitive marching band. Oh, okay. Um, um, basically, he had gone there and he'd been a performer. Uh, Imachi, sorry, Imachi. And he'd been a performer and a teacher at the same time. And I guess this was kind of a, a program they had going where they would bring over a couple Americans who had drum corps experience every year. And so I had been in touch with those guys. And uh, after the summer and the fall, um, so I was graduating in the spring and then I was going to teach drum corps that summer and then go move to Japan and, and do Imachi for a year. And so that was my plan. And um, at that point I had, I, I taught two summers at drum corps. I was going to go do that. And I had an ed degree, music ed degree, but I, I didn't want to be a band director. I wanted to play. Finals, drum corps finals day rolls around and um, I get an email and it says the governing body, competitive body for these Japanese marching bands, they've changed the, the rules on what type of visas you have to have if you're going to compete and all this stuff. Uh, and my understanding was that the other groups, you know, thought it was unfair that Imachi was bringing in drum corps people. And so they kind of changed the rules so that they couldn't. And so that all, so it just fell apart. It was yeah. like, I'm going home tomorrow to pack my bags to go to Japan and it's all gone. Wow. So I did the, you know, the stellar move that everyone wants to do after college and moved back in with my parents and ended up, I'd been teaching the uh, marching percussion section at the high school where I'd gone to high school. I, I taught there all through college in Edmond. And um, so I was like, Hey, I'm actually going to be here. And they're like, okay, great. Um, so I, I was writing the book for them and teaching there every day and teaching. I built up, got a bunch of private lessons going and doing that and kind of just living my best bachelor drum guy life. And then at the end of that semester, um, I got contacted, uh, actually, the guy who had played Imperial March on the trombone back when I was in fifth grade. And he said, Hey, there's this job you might be interested in. Um, and it was for a private school in Oklahoma city where they, uh, they had an opening for their percussion director. And it was kind of a weird deal. They had all their wins players and a completely separate program from percussion. There was no cohesive band. Um, and so there's this percussion job. And so I go down there and check it out and apply and, uh, get hired. So I, so I become a percussion teacher at this private school, um, that January, which I learned really quickly, everything to not do. Um, <laughs> when you're uh, starting halfway through the school year and the guy before you gets fired over Christmas break and all the kids loved him. And I came in all hardcore. Yeah. I learned real fast what doesn't work. So I taught at this private school, in Oklahoma City for, I taught there for three and a half years and uh, was teaching drum corps in the summers. And my wife was student teaching at the time and we had dated in high school and college. And then, so she moved back to Oklahoma City and we reconnected and third time was a charm. Her school where she was teaching at, in Oklahoma, teaching band in Oklahoma City, they opened a, a new position, a percussion director position. And I had kind of grown sour with the, the private school. They were starting to they had me, my last year there, they had me do a fifth grade study hall class. Yes. And uh, 
Yeah. Uh, Fifth graders don't study. Um, I don't know if that's common knowledge, but yeah. It's shocking news, Adam. Well, you heard it here first. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I was doing that. I was team teaching music theory, which I really enjoyed. That was really fun. Uh, And then they wanted me for the next year to also be teaching a middle school choir class. And it was just like, this is not the job I was hired to do or that I'm interested in doing. And the schedule there was very bizarre, but it ended up to where I was, I was bored. I had a lot of just dead time throughout the day. And so I started my master's degree. Um, David Steffens, who I had studied with, I reached out to him and it's like, is there any way I could do a part-time master's in performance with you? And um, he, he pulled all sorts of strings. He had just become the provost as well. So he had some power. Um, and, uh, I think that, I think that was the title he was in, but, um, so I became a full-time master student while I was a full-time teacher, which was tough. Yeah. I mean, my, my wife and I joke like that, those were the years where I accelerated into every parking spot, um, <laughs> getting faster, um, yeah, yeah. and taking four steps at a time, getting into the building, but so I did that for a year while I was at the private school and I left the private school and we went and I went to her school. And um, so we were teaching band together and a lot of people can't wrap their brain around sharing a job with their spouse, but it was perfect for us. Um, it was great. And uh, so I did that for one year there while I finished my master's at the same time. Um, and this is at Oklahoma City University is where I was doing that which is sort of the, in my opinion, I would say it's like the unofficial conservatory of Oklahoma, more or less. Beautiful facilities. That's where Tommy Dobbs is now. Yeah. He's okay. Um, I don't think anyone's heard of him now. Um, (laughs) It's Dr. Tommy Dobbs, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, No, he's great. And um, so I I did that. And because... uh, Dr. Steffens, he was the principal in the Philharmonic. He was giving me subbing jobs all the time, playing there. That was whenever I I kind of ended my teaching drum corps. So I marched four years of drum corps, and then I taught four years of drum corps, and then kind of gave that up to pursue the master's. I got married and then pursued, you know, going out for a master's. It was like, something's got to give. Right after my wife and I both finished our master's degrees, she got hers at OU in music ed. Mine was performance. Then I got a call to, for the percussion director job at Tulsa Union, which is a really big band program. And they ended up also having uh, one of the other band directors uh, leave, who is a clarinet player, which is my wife's instrument. So we packed up in a whirlwind and uh, came up to Tulsa and been here since. At Oklahoma City, um, was the focus more orchestral based? Or was it the no? But it was the same teacher. I, I so you kind of you already knew what the deal was, right? Yeah, it, it was orchestral based, um, but the, the percussion ensemble experience was awesome. You know, we were playing Crown of Thorns and Montana music. You know, Raymond Helbel stuff, and you know, the, all percussion the, all orchestra the great, stuff. You know, all the great stuff. We were doing all that, which I didn't get to experience. Uh, sure, my undergrad, so I loved it. And then, yeah, orchestrally, um, like we did a semester that where my private lessons were all, one semester it was all timpani excerpts. 
entire semester. Um, and he was really, really good about uh, individualizing the lessons. He had me, because I was teaching full-time, uh, we did one nine weeks where every week he made me learn a new sort of easy to intermediate formality piece that you would give a high schooler to play, which was, which was great. I, I became familiar with a lot more literature and, you know, helped me really see where there's a void in the literature um, that I think a lot of people are doing a lot of good writing to fill now. But um, yeah, so all sorts of, of good orchestral work and experience along with percussion ensemble and playing drum set in the big band there. It was a wonderful experience. The schools I was teaching at, I one the first year was at the private school. The second year was at the school with my wife. Because full time job and full time student, so I mean, how do you how do you even make that schedule work? Yeah, first of yeah. all, you don't. You you don't you have don't. a life. So okay, <laughs> I got that. That's has to be clear. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what? What was hard about it, but also made it possible, was that my wife was also, she was doing a master's in music and was a full-time band director. So, I mean, we would, you know, brush your teeth, wave goodbye. I'll see you the next time we brush our teeth. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was that for the first two years of our marriage. Whenever we were working together, that made it a lot easier. But it was hard because, you know, where I was going to school and teaching and where we lived, it wasn't all necessarily close uh, my dad and I ended up building a marimba. My, so I, I mentioned my dad's a percussionist. He's one of those guys who can do whatever. He can just figure anything out. Mm-hmm. He built one of the houses that we lived in growing up with no training in that. Um, and it's still standing to this day. Nice. But uh, um, so I sent him, I came, I come across this, I want to say either, either Australia or New Zealand, this, this guy, um, has a website it's like makeamarimba.com and i sent a link to my dad just because i thought he would find it interesting he texted me back a couple hours later and said i bought the plans for a five octave when do you want to find a lumber mill to get started (laughs) (laughs) and awesome i was like um all right okay so i mean so that started the process of us following this very very thick pdf document that was very very thorough and it was great and um so we went from from going to the lumber mill and picking out the wood to you know building it and, and me having a five octave room at home that so i could practice on it and and make this you know make the masters doable wow that that's super cool do, do you yeah. still have it oh yeah yeah i still have it it is a uh, pretty out of tune sure um, the, especially the middle the, the what for reason the middle octave the way you have to shape the underside of the keys is different from lower and, and higher octaves and in a way that is a lot trickier see so yeah, i still have it and uh and, and i've gotten to play on it a lot lately as i've been doing these etudes for the all-state thing yeah but um crazy story about this marimba yeah my dad we're working on it in his his garage this was our workshop and he's he's at the house one day and this car pulls in his driveway it's a nice sort of like a lincoln like a car, like a like an older person would drive. Mm-hmm. This lady gets out and rings his doorbell and says, uh, "I'm a little lost. Would you could you tell me where this dog grooming place is?" And there's nothing like that anywhere near where my parents were living. But her front license tag said Marimba, and 
so my dad helps her figure out, you know, where to go. And then he's like, I have to ask you about your license plate. And can I show you something in my garage? And which is a pretty creepy thing to say. Yeah, it um, is. <laughs> but um, so he shows her the marimba and turns out it's Vida Chenoweth. What? The Vida Chenoweth. <laughs> She, yeah, she was trying to take her dog to the groomer and got lost and ended up in my dad's driveway where we were building a marimba. And, um, oh my God, that's incredible. So it started this friendship and we found out that she lived in a retirement community a half a mile from where my wife and I were living. Whoa. Yeah, it was crazy, crazy, crazy. So we went, we went and had, you know, a couple meals with her there. She came over to our house and had dinner and she brought a bouquet of mallets that Mike Balter had gifted her at some point. Oh, that's um, and, and that was, you know, instead of bringing a bottle of wine to dinner, she brought her mallet bouquet that I still have. And um, we, we became friends. And um, she, uh, at that point, Colin Curry uh, was doing a concert with Oklahoma City Philharmonic. And we were able to go to the dress rehearsal and I brought her to it and, and uh, introduced them. And he was very, you know, gracious and kind and meeting her and, she sat in the front row of my master's recital. <laughs> Talk about uh, oh my. intimidating. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, we're having these meals where she's talking about, you know, you know how, how she intimidated Lee Howard Stevens and he would never play Bach in front of her and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, and then she's sitting on the front row of, of my recital. That was... Uh, were you playing Bach? No. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> It was really cool. Um, that was just such a divine meeting. Um, That's incredible. Uh, and yeah, became friends for a couple of years, um, you know, before, you know, she, dementia kind of, you know, settled in and, and she eventually passed away, but it was really, really cool. Uh, I have a, there's a book that C. Allen has published of her music that she played in dance bands that she wrote when she studied, when she was studying with uh, Musser mm. and, you know, she signed it and everything. And I've, I'm so lucky to have gotten to know her. That's, that is amazing. Did you, did she ever talk to you at all about her ethnography stuff? Yeah. Um, yeah. She talked about after she had that cooking accident, a fire, it burned her hands and she couldn't play anymore. And I don't remember exactly where she went and lived, but she, she talked about, you know, living with these tribes. Of, I want to say, was that Papua New Guinea? That was what I was thinking, but I didn't yeah. want to say the wrong thing. I can't I'll remember either. It was Pete, not me. Yes. Um, and one of the things that stuck with me that she talked about with that was um, she was, you know, basically creating a written language for them and teach the first first person that she taught how to how to read there they started the person started screaming and it's like she said you know the page is talking to me the page is talking to me and that was her comprehending the letters that were written which is just it's so mind-boggling um and very cool so yeah she did talk a little bit about about those years and that that always stuck with me it's such a an amazing experience. I, I think I got to meet her at a national conference on percussion pedagogy. She came to 
one of the set when it was in the, it was for a few years it was in it was at OU so mm-hmm. yeah um, so you went to a couple of those but I remember I actually re- remember that that side of it because this person's now a, a director of fine arts at I think like Lewis College or something like that in Ohio but her name's Laura Franklin she and I went to grad school together oh. at UCG and her dissertation was on that part of Vita Chenoweth's career. I have read that. Really? Yeah. There's, there's my nerd card. I just played it. Oh, that's uh, awesome. But yeah, I was like that name rang a bell and then, yeah. 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 That's, that's cool. Yeah. And, and Laura is one of the, one of my favorite people. She's so great. Were um, you at that NC? Is it NCCPP? NCPP? Yeah. Were you at the one whenever that big tornado came through? Yes. I oh, was yeah. there. I was at that one. Really? Yeah, I, I played uh, Jose before John Five. Oh, okay. I was in that. Yeah, my it was a friend of mine who was doing his master's there, and yeah, I was. Yeah, I was at that. I was there on campus when that tornado swept through more, just just north of there. Yeah, because because it was during a recital. It was it during that 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 recital. Um, I don't remember. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. Because we were in a we were in a room where we could you couldn't see outside all that much. You could mm-hmm. tell that there was. Something was going on out there, but, yeah. but it wasn't, I mean, it didn't seem as bad. And then I remember court came in and he's like, I just want you all, all to know that a tornado has basically wiped out of town like mm-hmm. 10 miles from here. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was, and then we, we ended up, um, I ended up driving friends to the airport after that. And we, we ended up kind of detouring just like, I mean, it's like, I, I feel bad saying that because I'm like, I've never been, I've never kind of seen the aftermath mm-hmm. of a tornado. And so I, I didn't quite get how it's like fine, complete destruction, fine. Like it's yeah. literally, you could yeah. see the path. It's yeah. wild. It, it is. It, yeah. It's crazy. It, it's very Oklahoma of me to bring up a tornado, but um, yeah, that one in particular was just, crazy was, yeah yeah um well, that's funny i didn't we didn't know that. we were we were we were together and we didn't we didn't even know um yeah, yeah. that's wild when you go to tulsa is that where is that where you were um up until this past year yeah yeah so i did eight years as a percussion specialist at tulsa union mm-hmm. um so sixth through twelfth grade uh, it's a humongous school, school district. Um, and I was responsible for all the percussionists, sixth through 12th mm-hmm. grade and a uh, very big marching band focus there. In those eight years, I think we did four trips to grand nationals. Oh, wow. We were in finals, three of those four trips, which is cool. Um, we did indoor drum line every other year. We do the whole shebang, go all the way to Dayton with it. That's where I started getting gray hairs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also the thing that I, I miss the most um, is the indoor drumline experience. Um, and um, what, why I, you know, it's, it's hard to put your, my finger on it, but I think it's in my position. I, I was, you know, the program coordinator made all the decisions about what was being rehearsed and what spaces are we going to use? And when are we rehearsing and who's playing what, and who's going to design the drill and, what company is going to print the floor and just having, you know, my finger on every single aspect of that 
you know, it made it all the more stressful, you know, where in marching band, you got several people to spread the load out on them. You know, I took all that on myself. And so I was, you know, just, you can't not be a billion percent invested in it. But it's also whenever my children were born was like indoor seasons. So mm. very, very, uh, you know, very taxing, very hard to do that. And, and I think, you know, because there's so, you know, you got maybe 35, 40 kids total and they're all, you know, my kids, so, you know, the kids that I've right. worked with every day and gone grade to grade from the sixth grade on with to where there's a you know, really intense bond there. And at some point, all of that activity, you just kind of said, I can't, I can't sustain this any longer. This is no longer fun. Uh, I want to be around my children so I could see them grow up like all of those things. It was all, it was all those things when COVID struck March of 2020, mm -hmm. uh, it was an indoor year for us and we were in uh, world class. So we we're in the highest classification and we had just gone to the Dallas regional and done really well. And we we're just, we were on track to go kick butt in Dayton and make finals and world class and all that cool stuff. And that, you know, shut, that shut it down. And that was, that was really hard to give that particular competitive group and that ensemble, that particular group of kids to give that up. And the next school year, the marching band did not do anything competitive. We didn't even really have, a, we didn't do a marching band show at all. The makeup of the district itself really uh, suffered and um, just everything changed and got a lot harder and it was just it became very different and it was not the job that it had been. And there were still a ton of great kids and parents that I, that I, you know, I really love. And I still stay in touch with a lot of them. A lot of the dynamics on the staff changed without going too far into that. Yeah. It was just, it was a combination of all the stuff you said. The main kicker was major dynamic change within the staff. And it was like, mm. yeah, I just, this just isn't the right place for, for me and for my family and a couple other uh, teachers as well. It was like, yeah, we, we got to go. We got to do something different. So, so had yeah, you original, yeah, had you had you looked for another percussion specialist position and then the Palin thing kind of came up or you didn't even get that far? Yeah, I was looking into one with a, a specific school um, and they were, they, were, they were the only one I was looking at. I really had just about everything you could ask for in terms of facilities and equipment. And, and so I was able to be real picky. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I was, I was talking to some folks from one school and looking at that really closely and a lot of great things about it, but not everything felt quite right. And then the Palin thing landed and it was just like, just a slap across the face, like no dummy, go do this. This is, you know, you need, you need at least for now, you need at least a break from, from that lifestyle all right so adam we finished with random ask questions sounds good maybe where so first question <laughs> is uh an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts or percussion composition you can even choose that field gosh what does it say about me that so many things come to mind really fast uh -huh. <laughs> um there's a lot of little nitpicky things, but I guess, you know, more globally, it really gets under my skin that there are these 
camps between orchestral concert percussion and marching percussion that think that the other is just completely illegitimate or lame or not worthwhile. You know, my, my experience is definitely very much above both worlds. And there, I think there are people who have done a lot of great work in both worlds. Jim Campbell, uh, Julie Davila. There's lots of people. Jim Ancona, Brian West, you know, lots of folks, but, um, not being willing to see quote unquote across the aisle on that to me is just, it's so silly and this doesn't make sense. Um, that really, when people talk down about the other side, um, I just, I just don't understand that because there's so much that goes across that is beneficial. That bugs me. And then whenever band directors say, Hey, hit the thing, just hit it. Uh-huh. Like, no, they're playing it. Yes. Not... Yeah. So, Yeah. Have you come across, or do you think at all about, um, you know, within within the programs that you taught in and kind of your various positions, any issues of uh, inclusion, diversity, equity, have they kind of come to you at all? Have you thought about them or the ways that you interact with in those circles? Besides the private school where I taught, um, everywhere else that I've taught, well, no, I take it back, even the private school, have all been very diverse, very, you know, very diverse. Um, teaching at Union, um, if you like, kind of globally look at the population of the school, being white, uh, I'm a minority, I was a minority. Hmm. Um, maybe not within, the band, not within the band program per se, but the school itself. And same with where we taught in Oklahoma City. And th- that's not how I grew up. Like school I grew up was, you know, very, you know, upper, upper middle class and, the guys are wearing two polos and both the collars are popped. Uh, <laughs> you know, puka shells. Yeah. The Jesus rope sandals. Uh-huh. All, all the good stuff, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, not diverse, not diverse. Um, and so I, you know, in my teaching career, that's been much more present, um, which I, I've been, I've been thankful for. Uh, so other questions, has anyone nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Well, you know, you'll have like a dress up days where, you know, kids yeah. would up like me or whatever and do a pretty good job. But what um, would they, how would they, how would they dress up like you? Uh, khakis, a plaid shirt, <laughs> maybe a vest, my, my McDonald's coffee order, small <laughs> sugar, uh, Yamaha lanyard. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, pretty predictable. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. One of the, band directors I taught with at Union, who is a a very, very dear friend for me and my wife. Um, Uh She, she could do the great impressions of everybody's walk, the way everybody walked. Oh, sure. And the way everybody conducted. And um, I'm like, my body makeup is like 90% legs, um, (laughs) which is real attractive, um, generally. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so that's where all the growth happened was just legs, like nothing else. Just legs. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, legs and arms. Yeah, like a uh, Mike Wazowski from Monsters Inc., but tall. Uh, <laughs> so I've got these very lanky, sort of bicycly-looking stride when I walk around. Uh-huh. Yeah, she definitely, you know, much to my chagrin, uh, nailed nailed my walk more so than I was aware of. Uh, <laughs> but based on how much everybody else was would laugh at it, I I knew it was accurate. Yeah, right. That's how you know. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's good. Uh, what's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Oh man, probably. Okay, so I have this shirt that one of my grandmothers actually gave my sister for Christmas. It's a denim button-up long sleeve shirt that has pockets on, like pockets down here on the front. Yeah, yeah. Where it has like any, near, like near the stomach. Like like your hips, yeah, like on your oh, hips. Oh wow, okay, yeah. It's little like pockets, and that had cats embroidered on the pockets, and um, it's yeah, it's bizarre. But um, that particular sister of mine has never once cared for a cat for one second in her life. Huge dog lover. Ah. But this is the shirt my grandmother got her for Christmas. As a high schooler, I was into all things being like ironic, you know? Yeah, yeah of and course. So I, I took the shirt for myself uh-huh. and I would wear it on tour. Um, you know, after shows and drum corps, guys would walk around in their core jackets with no shirt underneath trying to get girls, you know, super, super cool. And um, yeah. I would, I would strap on my cat shirt, buddy up with those guys and, and like totally, you know, ruin their, their <laughs> mojo and their pickup lines just by wearing that. And I still have it. <laughs> nice. Uh, Still have it. I know. It's been a long time since I've worn it, but I should have. I should have worn it for this. That would have been. Oh, that yeah, that would have been. Nice touch. Um, <laughs> all right. What's your biggest kitchen mess up? Okay, so when when Abby and I were first married, I was still teaching at that private school, and she was at Western Heights, uh, Southern School, and I always got home before she did. One day, I was like, okay, I'm gonna try to clean a bunch of stuff and uh, get the kitchen looking really nice. And, you know, she'll be so impressed that I helped clean. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, I'm going to run the dishwasher and blah, 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 blah. I put hand soap into the dishwasher. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Yeah. And so it didn't take long for the entire kitchen to be covered in bubbles and flooded <laughs> in our new house that we just got. And uh, so I am like a madman. I, I am, I, I rip off my shirt and I'm furiously like scooping up just tubs of bubbles and chucking it in the backyard. <laughs> and it was a disaster. Uh-huh. I mean, straight out of a sitcom, you know, it's like a, something you would have seen Tim Allen do on home improvement. Yeah, sure. Uh, really like a Kramer move. Um, that wasn't cooking. Um, per se, but a disastrous kitchen moment for sure. So when did, did she get home and see you? What happened? What, uh, (laughs) as I remember, and she might, I might not be completely right, but I think I got, I got it all out, except there was still a bunch in the dishwasher. Oh yeah. Um, And I, I was like, not going to tell her because I didn't (laughs) want to admit that I was that dumb. Uh Uh-huh. I'm sure she knew yeah. that I was that, but I didn't want to admit it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, open up the dishwasher and just all these bubbles, which is filled with bubbles. And I was like, what in the world is this? <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Great movie, The Godfather, mm. for sure. Um, are you a, are you, are you, uh, is, are you uh, like a one's better than two or two? Where are you? Okay. Um, you knew that was coming. I, 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 
I love them equally like my children. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, I think I think it's like if if one is a one hundred, two is a ninety nine point nine, maybe. Yeah, yeah I, I think they're both just fantastic. Three, I think everyone can agree. There's a big drop off. Big drop off. Yeah. Big drop off. Yeah. But um, yeah, one and two love those movies. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bad movie. Yeah. Um, okay. Here's I already I played a nerd card earlier, but uh, mm-hmm. here's another one. A couple several years ago, my wife and I got into this weird routine of like on Friday night we would watch a, a mystery science theater. Yeah, uh, and you know those are you know uh, for me I can only take so many, sure. um, and it's like, okay I need a like a seven or eight year break and then we'll maybe try it again. Yeah, but um, there was this movie that they did on there, uh, Cry Wilderness. Okay. It is there's a, there's a there's a, a Bigfoot in it, yeah, a Sasquatch character. It's it's um <laughs> it's unbelievable yeah. how terrible the movie is, but you love it. So it's not like a terrible movie that I hate. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's beyond terrible, um, <laughs> and it's it's really it's worth the time. It's really okay. worth the time. Yeah, cry Wait, to, so to watch it uh, like w- while they're watching it and doing the the commentary. <laughs> I would watch it just either, without them. <laughs> I would say either watch it with them in the commentary. You could watch it without, but you'd have to be with a friend or somebody. Don't oh, watch it by yourself without. I got you. that, that's just a very sad moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one of our favorites that, that I don't even, I couldn't even tell you what movie, but one of our favorite comments that we used to say to each other all the time when I was in college is uh, there was one where there was like, they were doing like an SOS or uh, mm-hmm. Morse code or something like that. And uh, and they're they're pretending what the Morse code is saying, and one of the times they were sending it along, and and they're like, "Send acting coach." <laughs> uh, yeah, those are great. Those are great. Uh, that, that's a good one. Now, have you on the Godfather? Have you seen the um, the reconfigured version that puts it in in the timeline order? No, the first two in no. the timeline order. Mm-mm. oh it's, it's, no, it's really I good i mean it's kind of fast it's a fascinating way to watch because it's like like most of two and then one and then back to t- like it's one of the like that so that's you know to to make it so you're like starting with the de, with the 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 de niro stuff basically right yeah 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 so it's it, it's good i mean it's still really good it's just like it's a different way of um but you know, if you have like, I'm sure you have seven and a half hours to kill to 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 watch, to watch that version. So, yeah, if I just didn't want to sleep, yeah. you know, some weekend it'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you know, what could go wrong? Yes. Now, do you have a and a somewhat related question? Do you have a favorite in theater movie experience? Oh, I love movies. I love going to the movies. Haven't as much since becoming a parent. Sure. Um, but, oh man, part of me wishes that I had been a kid whenever the early uh, John Williams blockbusters were happening. Oh, sure. I love John Williams. Um, you know, see, see those, the first, you know, Star Wars or Indiana Jones. Yeah, nothing specific comes to mind. After I saw um, the, is it Ford v. Ferrari? Yeah, uh, yeah. After I, that 
I mean, you have to see that in the theater. Right. Um, I, I may have driven home very fast. Uh, <laughs> I very believe quickly. it. It's possible. Yeah, it's it's highway from the closest theater to our house, and and I went. Yeah. I did like a like a late night movie on my own. Like everyone else went to bed early. I was like, I want to go see this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I broke the law that night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's not a, it should be noted. That's like a two and a half hour movie. It's not a short movie either. Oh no. Yeah. You gotta commit. You gotta commit. But it, it is. That movie is awesome. Uh, that yeah. movie is really cool. It's like, that's a good one. Um, do you have a favorite book? In an individual book, I, I read a lot growing, basically pretty much until I got into like really into percussion. I was reading a lot and drawing a lot. Mm. Um, probably my favorite series would be the Stephen King Dark Tower series. Uh, read those. And those are, I mean, I've, I've you know, sci-fi or fantasy or whatever series, you know, like Harry Potter and Chronicles of Narnia and all those type of stuff. I've, I've read a lot of that. And, the Dark Tower is just beyond those. Um, why? Why? Because I, I, I've had other people talk. Why is that? Why is that series so good? It's hard. It's hard to put my finger on it. A lot of people get turned off with Stephen King and how like he could spend one hundred pages on something that's. I don't know. He is a prolific <laughs> writer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But. I mean, those books, the the stories and the char- the character development, and I think there's seven of them in that series. Something like that. The char- character development is is so thorough and so raw. It's so raw and so real. And all the characters, good and bad, you know, they're they're flawed characters. It's like I don't know if you ever watched Yellowstone, but it's like even the good guys are kind of bad guys. Sure. Um it's yeah. So all the characters are like that. I don't know. It's the the worlds that that series weaves between. It's it's. I don't know. It's just so rich. And like, how do you how do you think of how do you come up with that? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. That's that's. I guess what really draws me to that. What about I, you? What do you read? I, I read everything. Uh, I, I, like a, that's not a joke. Like I, I kind of have a wide swath. So I've read you know on the Stephen King. I've read a few. I've read The Stand, which was mm-hmm. yeah. great, uh, oh, which man. was like the fastest 1,100-page read I think I could imagine. <laughs> I, I can't be- like I can't believe how fast I got through that. That was that was really shocking. And uh, and, a, and a friend of mine was was a massive fan of his and said, he, and I was just like I hadn't read anything yet. He's like read Cujo. Hmm. That was also really good. Um, yeah. that was my first one. And and I've been told I need to write. Have you ever read his on writing? Yes, I've heard yeah. like it's. I've heard it's incredible, and I. It's I need yeah, it. yeah. It's really interesting. I was dumb and read the stand. I started reading the stand in like February of 2020, right Ooh, before the oh pandemic. <laughs> wow, that's. <laughs> Yeah, for listeners out there, the premise is that like a super flu, government created super flu, like wipes out like yeah. 75% of the world or something. Yeah. So it's really bad timing. Um, yeah. But it's great. It's a great book. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, did you watch Contagion right after that? Do you remember that? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, that's funny. Uh, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? A lot of places. 
actually where my in-laws are right now is at the top of my bucket list. And that is Israel and like the Holy lands. And mm, yeah, um, that's the top of my list. Um, I, I want to yeah go, go there and see that and um, go to that part of the world. And, mm. um, but I, you know, I've never been to, I've been to Europe, I've been to some Central America, but that's it. I've never been to, you know, Japan or, I really want to go there. I want to go to Australia, Africa. There's a lot of places I, would, I want to go. Yeah. I think a friend of mine's um, parents did like the, I want to say like the walking tour, like the Paul's walking tour or something like that. Oh, yeah. Which I can't remember where, if that is actually Israel or if that's Egypt or part of Italy. Like I can't remember. Like I, it's, do you know what I'm talking about? I think you might. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's exactly like, that's the kind of thing I want to do. Like, is there a place in Edmond? Like if you go back that you're like, I have to eat here. <laughs> Not really. Okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. The cuisine between Oklahoma city and Tulsa is the same. <laughs> uh, there, there's no yeah, homesickness for, for certain foods really. Is there, but is there like a really good barbecue stuff near you? Yeah, there's, uh, there's um, a place in Tulsa called Burn Co. Mm-hmm. That is really good. They're only open for lunch every day and they sell Ooh. out oh, wow. food every day and they're just open for lunch. Um, nice. And yeah, that's, that's definitely the place to go for barbecue in Tulsa. All right. Last couple, uh, strangest, funniest, most bizarre performance moment that involves you. Teaching kids, middle school, high school kids, <laughs> a lot of things come to mind. But um, when I was at my first job at a private school, um, one year I had to do a beginning percussion class that was eighth graders. Mm. And these were kids who couldn't care less about percussion, but they had to get an arts credit. Yeah. And so preparing them for our spring concert. We're putting the stuff together and this group of kids, they, they just fed off each other and they would not learn their music. And, you know, I'm doing everything I can. I'm still a really young teacher mm-hmm. um, trying to help them. And I'm setting up extra rehearsal times and during study hall and all this thing. Anyways, I'm like, guys, the concert is next week and we can only play half the piece. And if they had been real pleasant kids, I, it would have been different but they were very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And um, so we get to the concert and it's like, we can't get to the end. Like they, we've never done it one time successfully. And so, you know, I was probably, I don't know, 25 or And uh, it's pretty young. We, we get going and we get going through the piece I'm conducting and one by one, they start to just stop playing. And cause I mean, they don't know their parts and, yeah, yeah. and I, and so I, in the moment I made the decision that I was going to conduct until the end of the piece, no matter what was happening around it. Okay. So basically they, they were, they were testing me and, and then I just pushed right back. So I ended up conducting about 40 seconds of complete silence um, and not budging at all. And just, I was smiling and, you kids. I sound like a Scooby-Doo bad guy. Like, yeah. but yeah, I got to the end. I cut off the big, big cut off of nothing. 
and then turned to the crowd and, you know, smiled and acknowledged them and took the bow to a scattered, confused applause. Oh man. Yeah. They just, they fought me tooth and nail. And, um, no matter how many, like how much I tried and olive branches and this and that, yeah, they would have none of it. And I was like, okay, well, Wow. I'm going to be a little immature and this is how it's going to go. <laughs> Pretty awkward. I mean, I get it. <laughs> that is one way to do it. Yeah. 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 So that, I didn't um, get any blowback. So I don't that's know good. if that makes it right or not. But yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's good. I mean, it, it sounds like, <laughs> like you did it basically as professionally as you could, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I tried. I tried my hardest. Yeah. And that was, that was what happened. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question, Adam. One piece of art, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything that impacted you the most recently? So at PASIC this year, mm-hmm. um, I did a piece for Wakeland High School. I mentioned them earlier. One of the other pieces on their concert was um, uh, Ivan Trevino wrote it, and it was um, it was a it was a tribute to Rob Parks, um, mm. who passed away this summer. I I didn't know him personally, but um, you know, great teacher and beloved in the percussion community by a lot of people. And at the rehearsal, the dress rehearsal the night before. My piece was after Ivan's, and so I was sitting in there while he worked with the kids, and they were just sort of playing it like a pretty straightforward chorale. Um, and then he worked some real magic with them. And then at the concert, I I discovered a few seconds into the piece that sitting, I was sitting right on the aisle, and right across from me was uh, his wife and daughter, um, Rob's. I just happened to catch them out of the corner of my eye and realize who they were. And I was just, it just, and the kids played beautifully. It was not what I had heard in the rehearsal before. It was very musical. It was, and I mean, I, I cried like a baby and I never even met the man. Um, it was just it was such a moving moment. You know, Ivan is such a gracious person and so genuine. And those kids did such a great job and seeing his family there, it was, it was really powerful. Um, and uh, even though I don't, I don't know them, they don't know me. That definitely, I would say, is the, the most recent, really impactful, impactful thing. Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. That's going to be a great way to end. Wow. Thanks, Adam. Oh well, yeah, thank you. I mean, I've, yeah. I've listened for years. I, I love your podcast, so this is really cool. Well, I, I yeah, and I really appreciate that you took the time last. Uh, fall to listen to me do my presentation that was uh that was very helpful it was like till oh yeah well good what a lot of fun talking to adam i wish him the best of luck in his new role with palin and of course i thank him very much for his appreciation of this podcast This week's rave involves a discussion of a few of my favorite films that I got to see at this year's True False Festival that I mentioned at the beginning. I will mention beforehand to look for these on streaming services or movie theaters or anywhere else 
at some point in the future, though I can't speak for when those might appear in such formats. The first up was Millie Suthando, a documentary set in the past, present, and future South Africa, written and directed by Millie Suthando Bongela. This work was one of the deepest meditations on race and belonging that I've ever seen, heard, or read in my entire life. The writer-director tells a portion of her story about her family, but spends much of the time focusing on the history of South Africa in and out of apartheid throughout the 20th century, along with long discussions about the Mandela generation, which were the folks who are now adults but were school-age children at both the end of apartheid in South Africa, along with the release of Nelson Mandela from 27 years of prison that occurred in the late 80s, early 90s, and the first sets of integrated schools that happened at that time. It's a bit on the long side, but brilliantly done and very effective. I highly recommend it. Next up is Going Varsity in Mariachi, a film set in Texas high school in the Rio Grande Valley, directed by Sam Osborne and Alejandra Vasquez. While there's nothing groundbreaking about this work, it is a wonderful year-in-the-life journey as a high school prepares for their performance year that year. It's all of the beats of a classic sports film or 30 for 30, but it's about high school mariachi bands that are very prevalent in many parts of Texas and Arizona and their performance circuit. It's just a good time and very enjoyable, and I expect that to be available quite soon. Next up is Three Women, titled Dre Frauen, a documentary set in the Ukrainian village of, I'm going to try not to mess this up, Stuzutsia, literally meaning a cold place, and directed by Maxim Melnik. Set mostly before the current Russian-Ukraine conflict, the film focuses on three women, a farmer, a post office clerk, and a biologist, and their lives in this remote town. The director and his crew also become parts of the movie as he films their lives, their ups and downs, and finds a lovely level of warmth in all of these folks' lives. It feels set in a sad time and place from the outside, but it's all about making a life wherever you are. Really, really good. And lastly, and most strikingly, is The Taste of Mango, directed by Chloe Abrahams. The film is a personal deep dive into the lives of Chloe, her mom, and her grandmother on her mom's side, and the stories and the heartbreak that's been buried in their past that come up during long discussions throughout the film. This is the only film I saw in my time at the documentary festival that got a standing ovation. And if you see it, you'll know why. It's devastating and heartbreaking and beautifully rendered as well as, on the music side, having incredibly perfect musical selections accompany it. There is apparently, according to the director, an old-time country music love that comes from Sri Lankan communities all over the world, of which she is a member, and it includes music by Kenny Rogers and Tanya Tucker throughout. It also includes, as previous podcast guest Eric Danielson, who was there watching the movie with me, mentioned after the film, the best subtitles about the musical score that we've ever seen described on film. I mean, at one point, it said on the screen, chimes appear at double time tempo. 
That's exactly what the sound was. It's perfect. It's definitely one to watch when it becomes available to you. So keep all those films in your brain for a future time. And check out Millie Suthando, Going Varsity in Mariachi, Three Women, and The Taste of Mango when they are available to you, hopefully very soon, and enjoy. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.